0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary? With Sean and Carrie, I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. This week, I don't want to call this a homework episode, but I think this is a, a good setup for a lot of topics we want to cover in the future. That doesn't mean this won't be interesting in and of itself, I don't want to give you that impression, but I think this is great background for um, almost any alien story that we want to tell in the future.
1: All right. Lay it on me.
0: Caroline, some of my favorite uh, topics so far have been uh, outer space, alien, UFO related. Um,
1: yeah, we just did one. The uh, the Lost Cosmonauts. Not alien related, as, at least as not as far as we know, but... Uh, Definitely a spooky outer space kind of story.
0: That's right. Go just back to last week's episode for some great outer space discussion. But we've also done some stuff uh, to do with aliens, like Georgia Damsky, um, Betty and Barney Hill. Those mm-hmm. are great episodes. If you're interested in this kind of thing, that you also narrated. Yeah, but that's not why I'm mentioning them. You, you haven't <laughs> no, you haven't course. tackled any little green menu.
1: Well, you love the alien ones. I
0: do. And I think a lot of the stuff that I want to talk about this week is useful when you want to talk about aliens. So that's why we're going to talk about the Fermi Paradox.
1: This is like a book, what you talk about when you talk about aliens. Sure,
0: and what you talk about is the Fermi Paradox. (laughs) Uh, For those who don't know, the Fermi Paradox is a contradiction between the apparently high probability that intelligent life exists somewhere in the universe, apart from here, and the total lack of evidence for intelligent life anywhere except Earth,
1: sort of like a scientific mathematical declaration
0: yeah it's a it's a paradox it's it's a contradiction. it doesn't make sense.. Mm-hmm. Some scientists said, "Hey, there probably are just doing a little napkin math here. there probably are aliens. I don't see any aliens. What up with that? I'm sure that's exactly how it went, uh it, probably. <laughs> What up with that? The existence of aliens is an interesting thing to me. If you ask, it's not like the existence of ghosts. People, if you ask someone if they've seen something ghostly and they tell you no, and then you ask them if they believe in ghosts, they're probably going to say no. Maybe. Maybe. But I feel like aliens, the like boilerplate answer you get from a skeptic is, oh, there must be something out there somewhere. But I don't think it's come to Earth yet.
1: Right. They don't believe in flying saucers necessarily, but they might believe in intelligent life somewhere in the universe aside from Earth.
0: Right. And it's kind of that's kind of the position I take only because I haven't seen a UFO report that didn't sound like it was, um, you know cloud cuckoo landers stop
1: well you know i think that's why you've covered more alien topics and i've covered more ghostly paranormal topics it's because we're each i mean i do believe that there's probably in probability something out there in the universe um but i think you're especially as a skeptic more prone to believe that in that than the paranormal especially since you've never had any experiences
0: yeah well absolutely it's also, I think, you and I were talking off mic um, this week. As we are want to do. We occasionally do. <laughs> occasionally, she she um, deigns to <laughs> cro- cross the condo and speak to me.
1: <laughs> cross, sitting on our same couch <laughs> with our dog. We were talking
0: about how believing in God ghosts believing in the supernatural um is partly probably out of out of hope hope that there is something to move on to after death if if ghosts exist maybe why not me right it's it's a um even though ghosts are scary believing them is a comfort in a way in a bigger way
1: I totally agree with that. I mean, I've had uh, paranormal experiences, whether you believe in it or not. And in the moment, it is frightening because it's unexplainable and uncontrollable and you don't know what's happening. Um, But it gives you the perspective of, okay, well, maybe there's more to this life than just the average of what is it, 75 years or whatever, and that's it. And then there's nothingness. There is a kind of hope to it, even though it is scary. But aliens, I mean, look look at our, our own Earth. Look at our countries. Um, if they're coming here, it's more likely than not, not to to be a hopeful experience, but like trying to conquer us or we're going to have to fight or whatever. Just looking at how humanity is. I mean, who knows what an alien would be, but it's, to me, more frightening than a ghost.
0: But I think there is some of the same... Not that aliens would give you hope for an afterlife,
1: but hope for something more
0: hope that there's something else that we're not just on a a rock flying through cold, infinite space, totally alone, you know?
1: Yeah, I think the thing about ghosts is the fear of death and the unknown. And the the thing about aliens is um, a fear of being alone or not being alone and what either of those things can mean.
0: Yeah. And those were the things that Enrico Fermi was thinking about one day in the late 40s. Uh, Fermi was an Italian physicist who's been called the architect of the nuclear age Mm. uh, because he was the creator of the world's first controlled nuclear chain reaction.
1: Not sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing.
0: (laughs) In the long term, I think the period on that sentence has not been written, Carrie. Yeah. Fermi's early career was spent in Italy, in the 20s and 30s he did some really groundbreaking work on particle physics. He discovered a uh, weak interaction. He was the first one to describe it. Uh, I don't understand that at all, <laughs> but it is the interaction between particles that's responsible for radioactive decay.
1: Mm-hmm. It's crazy how they were able to do this stuff in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. Before cell phones or computers, really.
0: Well, you don't have cell phones and computers without these physicists doing their thing in the <laughs> Exactly. 30s and 50s. It's wild. He even won a Nobel Prize for his efforts in Italy after it appeared he had discovered two new elements, but it turned out those were, there was, it was just some radioactive decay stuff happening and they were actually isotopes of other elements. Um, so there's an asterisk on his Nobel Prize. Anyway,
1: Aww.
0: he ultimately left Italy in 1938, not because of the asterisk, uh, but because <laughs> racial- I'm out of here. Because racial, apuri- racial purity laws were affecting his Jewish wife, Laura Capon.
1: Oh, Yeah, I mean, the World War II uh, in Italy, you know, it's really underreported, but there were Jews in Italy and they were taken away a lot of the time and discriminated against just like elsewhere.
0: Which is why Fermi and his wife got out of there, moved to the United States, and within a few months, he was working on the Manhattan Project. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Like I said, Fermi led the team that designed and built Chicago Pile 1, the first human-created, self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction. It was a necessary step in getting to the eventual bomb, which of course ended World War II. After the war, Fermi continued working with J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, our old friend. Our very dramatic friend. He worked on the General Advisory Committee, which advised advised the Atomic Energy Commission on what would kind of be best to do with nuclear energy and weapons.
1: Nothing. (laughs) Put it away. Because it it might have ended World War II, but it'll start World War III.
0: After the first Soviet fission bomb was detonated in a test in August 1949, Uh Uh-oh. Fermi, along with Oppenheimer, were uh, two of the scientists leading the charge, opposing development ever, of a hydrogen bomb or, quote, super uh, thermonuclear uh, warheads uh, would, of course, be invented and uh, be be the primary things the U.S. and Russia threatened each other with throughout the Cold War.
1: Yep, mutually assured destruction, all that fun stuff.
0: Fermi even testified on Oppenheimer's behalf at the 1954 hearing, where Oppenheimer lost his security clearance for making so much noise about how bad bombs were.
1: He was dramatic, but... Not a bad guy.
0: What was that um, Truman quote? Never let that fucking cretin in my office again.
1: Truman. Truman had some problems.
0: (laughs) Fermi uh, continued to do important work in particle physics, making discoveries about pions and muons, which are subatomic particles I don't
1: understand at all. Sounds like a Pokemon.
0: um, Until he, uh, well, unfortunately died fairly early in 1954. But before that... He had a bunch of things named after him, including uh, several telescopes and several particles and also the Fermi paradox. This
1: probably the most famous thing.
0: Probably, because it gets talked about in so many other areas, futurism and uh, um, UFO conspiracy. And sci-fi. Sci-fi. In 1950, Fermi was at working at Los Alamos National Laboratory on more bombs. And he was eating lunch with uh, fellow physicists Emil Konopinski, Edward Teller, and Herbert York.
1: More IQ at that lunch table than in my whole college. I <laughs> know, really. <laughs> uh,
0: and these guys were discussing a recent spate of UFO reports in the paper. You know, kind of funny, silly.
1: Well, they're in the area, right? The 50s?
0: Yes, yes. And they were in... Um, Los Alamos is in... New Mexico? New Mexico, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. So they're they're right there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and in fact, on this particular lunch, the four were laughing about a magazine cartoon. I, I don't see a... a specific reference but i bet it was a new yorker cartoon um <laughs> featuring aliens stealing new york city trash cans there was a trash can theft rash in oh. new york at the time <laughs> um Kana Pinsky says um more amusing than the cartoon was fermi's comment that it was a very reasonable theory since it accounted for two separate phenomena so these guys know how to have a good time
1: man what a cool cool table
0: and Fermi said to Teller at this point, uh, Edward, what do you think? He probably had an Italian accent. Edward, what do you think? Nice. How probable is it? I'm not going to keep telling that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Edward, what do you think? How probable is it that in the next 10 years we shall have clear evidence of a material object moving faster than light? Uh, Teller put the probability at
1: somewhere around 10 to the negative sixth, which is one in a million. I love making those kinds of estimations with such complicated math. Yes. Like, I can't even, like, that's me, like, that's me going, I don't know, like, 10 to the fourth power, whatever that is. (laughs) What?
0: Fermi said, without hesitation, uh, this is much too low. The probability is more like 10%.
1: Okay. He seems to know what he's talking about.
0: There was probably an awkward silence for just a moment. The conversation moved on to other things, and some minutes later, or possibly at a different lunch, Fermi, out of nowhere, exclaimed, But where is everybody?
1: That's a mood. That's a pandemic mood right there.
0: Now Teller says the result of his question was general laughter because of the strange fact that, in spite of Fermi's question coming from the clear blue everybody around the table seemed to understand at once that he was talking about extraterrestrial life.
1: Oh, I like to think that if this was a later lunch, he had kind of had these little exclamations since then. Like, he was clearly thinking about this a lot. We,
0: we have, um, I've had friends like this who will, like, break off, like, if, if a conversation is interrupted, they'll walk to you up to you later in the party, still mid-sentence. I know it. you're
1: talking about Rob Larosa. So, uh, no, Rob, we love you. We love your storytelling. <laughs> I was actually not talking about Rob. Oh, cuz I was I was talking about Rob. <laughs> My friend Rob will start a story and it'll be the funniest shit you've ever heard. It will go on for very long. There'll be several tangents related but different and then he'll he'll eventually go so as I was saying, and then we're, we're now we're out and we still have to figure out how this story ends. Um, <laughs> but it's always a journey. So thank you, La Rosa.
0: Thank you for your service. <laughs> he's probably
1: telling a story right now. <laughs> Some say he's still telling the same story from before.
0: York said that Fermi followed up with a series of calculations on the probability of Earth like planets, the probability of humans given life. The probability that life would eventually become human-like things, the likely rise and duration of high technology, and so on. He concluded on the basis of such calculations that we ought to have been visited long ago and many times over.
1: That's wild to me. I mean, unless you know vaguely the amount of planets in the universe, how would you ever figure that out? I'm sure you can, but it's it's beyond me. Very far beyond me.
0: Well, the other physicist, Teller, said that not much came of the lunch conversation, quote, except perhaps a statement that the distances to the next location of living beings may be very great, and in that, indeed, as far as our galaxy is concerned, we are living somewhere in the sticks, far removed from the metropolitan area of the galactic center.
1: Okay, interesting. So we're in the uh, universal boonies.
0: Yeah, that was at least the, the that initial hypothesis on that initial day. Mm-hmm. You asked about how we, how we calculate all this stuff, Carrie.
1: Please tell me. I won't understand it, but tell me anyway.
0: We have an equation. The, uh, love equations. The Drake equation was thought up in 1961 by Frank Drake. He's also an uh, astrophysicist. Um, less for the purposes of actually concretely calculating how many civilizations there are in the universe, and more just for purposes of discussion at the very first SETI conference.
1: Right. SETI.
0: Search for extraterrestrial intelligence.
1: Yes. You got it. You got it, Ice.
0: The first conference uh, consisted of
1: Drake, Carl Sagan, and just eight others. You know what? With, what was it, four people at this lunch? That seems like enough. <laughs> and the Drake
0: equation that he brought along says N equals R times FP, NE, FL, FI, FC, L.
1: Seems legit.
0: Where N is the number of technologically advanced civilizations in the Milky Way. That's what we're trying to get to. And to get that, we multiply the rate of formation of stars in the galaxy by... the fraction of those stars with planetary systems, the number of Earth-like planets per solar system, the percentage of Earth-like planets where life appears, the fraction of Earth-like planets where life appears and becomes intelligent, the fraction of civilizations that reach the technological level where signals could be detected, and the length of time a civilization creates those signals. Using numbers that some have called optimistic to (laughs) plug into all those places, um, SETI-1 estimated that there were between 1,000 and 100 million advanced civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. Very specific. Now, it should be noted that using more pessimistic numbers, uh, other astrophysicists have since gotten that same equation to less than one intelligent civilization in the Milky Way.
1: Well, we know that's correct.
0: <laughs> well, at least we're not the one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously it goes without saying that many of the variables in that equation are difficult to assign a value or an exact probability to, uh, like we don't understand how likely it is that life begins on a planet. We don't know how that happened on earth. And so we don't know how, how, uh, what crazy circumstances need to take
1: place. Yeah. I mean, that's wild that he was able to figure out this equation.
0: Well, it's just really a, a laundry list of all the factors That you would think, you know, factor into this.
1: You say it very nonchalantly, but I once had to come up with a very uncomplicated equation for a screenplay I wrote, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) I was looking at Yahoo Answers, I was reading math textbooks. I know the screenplay. I don't even know if it's correct. I know the screenplay well. (laughs) I don't know math
0: enough to tell you whether it's correct.
1: Yeah. I hope no one ever does, because I know it's wrong. (laughs)
0: Now, I will say this, current estimates predict billions of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way. Earth-like
1: meaning habitable. They live in Habitable by our standards.
0: Yeah, they live in what we'd we'd call a habitable zone from the sun, where um, atmospheres aren't too hot, and uh, oceans could potentially form, and they're rocky planets, not gas giants.
1: But again, that's that's for humanity. I mean, there could be lava monsters on a lava planet. We don't know.
0: I agree, and we'll talk (laughs) about that later. Uh, Something else we have to get out of the way ahead of time, uh, a word about signals. Alien observers of our solar system, our solar system, um, would probably observe that there's unusually high radio waves coming from a star the size of our sun, even just from our, like, leakage of our technology. Now, the most sensitive Earth equipment wouldn't pick up undirected radiation from even a fraction of a light year away, so not even the closest stars. Um, but the aliens might have better stuff so they might be able to see us even if we can't see them. Mm-hmm. That's noted. Um, some have suggested we may be able to pick out advanced civilizations by watching for changes in their electromagnetic output like from a star, um, particularly with a peak in the infrared because this is the proposed effect
1: a dyson sphere would have. Okay now we've we've <laughs> we've watched videos about this and this is. This is the closest thing to like going to a Grateful Dead concert and blazing out of your mind. This is really trippy stuff.
0: Physicist and futurist Freeman Dyson, who just died last year, actually, I think he was like 92. A uh, good run, good guy. R.I.P. He speculated that uh, the Dyson sphere, as it became to be known, was kind of the natural prog- progression of an advanced spacefaring civilization. He observed that humanity's energy needs had Risen dramatically and consistently as technology improved,
1: and very quickly.
0: He reasoned that this wouldn't stop when civilizations had reached a certain point, or certainly when they reached the spacefaring point. Um, and he assumed that they'd need to find some way to fill that that those energy needs. So Dyson, tell
1: me, tell me about the sphere.
0: Dyson's conception um, was a series of structures, a series of picture like a series of rings or bands. That you would build around the sun, basically a bunch of... It's like building a, a solar farm
1: mm-hmm. around
0: the entire sun in rings.
1: Kind of looking like um, an atom, right? You know, the...
0: Yes, but you... That
1: image of the atom.
0: But you would keep adding rings, needing more and more energy, until eventually the sun would be completely surrounded, in Dyson's estimation. Okay. And so, looking at that sun, from even from far away, our radio telescopes and things would be able to pick up a dimming of its light... By the surrounding of these rings.
1: So he said you wouldn't be getting a increased electromagnetic output, you would be getting a decreased if they are very advanced.
0: Yes, and in fact, um, there'd be specifically kind of a peak around the infrared zone, would, because that energy would, would penetrate all the solid matter.
1: And this... Ooh, I'm going back to astronomy in college. So this would this be different than, let's say, a star dying, which we can pick up um, because don't they increase in, in size or heat or energy or whatever?
0: Yeah, when stars die, they go supernova. So they actually explode and you see a, a huge increase in energy
1: and then a, a steep decrease. Yeah. then. They but if, if we detect a, a decrease without that insane increase, it could be this it could be the Dyson sphere.
0: Yeah, and it would be a a slow uh, dimming. Interesting. It's nothing we've seen. It's just an interesting thing to note. And trust me, there will be plenty more about Dyson spheres in the next part of this episode. So uh, I figured I would get us ready right now.
1: Great. I'm going to go crack out my astronomy textbook. (laughs) Good.
0: (laughs) Um, So let's get to our Fermi paradox answers. The Fermi paradox isn't a thing we prove or disprove, right? It's just true. What I told you is...
1: Well, until there is proof either way.
0: Right. But for now... Then it's not a
1: paradox. (laughs) Yes,
0: exactly. That would solve the paradox. Right now, it's true that it seems likely that there's uh, aliens out there and that we haven't seen them. So um, that's not an answer. It's a question. So here are the answers to the Fermi paradox. And any answer you could give me, I think, will fall under one of these five answers. Mm Mm-hmm. Answer number one. Extraterrestrial life is rare or non-existent. That answers the paradox. The the first part's just not true. (laughs) There's just not a lot of them. Yeah, there's just not a lot of them out there, so of course we haven't seen them. Maybe there's none. Second choice. Extraterrestrial life exists, maybe tons of it, but it hasn't developed into advanced intelligent civilizations anywhere except here.
1: Could be just a bunch of amoebas on a planet somewhere.
0: It could be that the series of events that allowed us to exist and thrive and survive for as long as we have uh, is so improbable that it hasn't happened anywhere else. Third, advanced extraterrestrial civilizations might exist, but have no intention of coming here.
1: Listen, I feel that. Okay, <laughs> I feel that.
0: I don't know how, long, how much longer I want to be here, you know? <laughs> um, second, ad, or fourth, sorry. Advanced extraterrestrial civilizations might exist, but we can't see them, or they can't see us.
1: Now, is that a technology thing, or like a parallel dimension thing?
0: It could be either. There's a- aspects <laughs> of that answer that are both.
1: Woo. okay.
0: And finally, it could be that advanced extraterrestrial civilizations exist, And they're already here. (laughs) They have been here. They visited. And we don't know about it.
1: Nor we do. The reptilians.
0: Well, yes, I will say most of the the theories that fall under that last answer do involve the governments of the world knowing about aliens and actively hiding their um, existence from us. Or being
1: aliens. Because I I, I mean, maybe Prince Philip just went back to his planet, man.
0: Oh, that's a great. That's a great point and a nice thought for Philip. <laughs> and I think that's uh, where I'll leave us for a break. Uh, when we get right back, I'm going to take us this week through just those first two answers. So what we're going to discuss is the possibility that extraterrestrial life just ain't out there.
1: Or is very rare.
0: Or is very rare. Or the possibility that the situation that created us here is so was so rare and improbable that as far as intelligent life goes, we really are alone. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on.
1: Want to treat your pup to something special? When you visit www.barkbox.com slash you can receive a free month added to your plan when you sign up for a six or 12 month subscription. That's an extra month of two fun toys, two full-size bags of treats, and a tasty chew at no additional cost. Recent box themes have included Home Alone, Liquor Treat, and A Night at the Squeak Easy. Poe loves trying out new toys and treats, and he was psyched to get a BarkBox. Your pup will be too. So sign up at www.barkbox.com slash scary for a free month added to any 6 or 12 month subscription. That's BarkBox.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Give your furry friends something to bark about.
0: Welcome back. Before the break, I laid out all the possible answers to the Fermi Paradox. They basically boil down to there are no aliens. There's no smart aliens. There are aliens, but they have no... They, they're not coming here. There are aliens, but we can't see them. Or there are aliens, and the government is actively hiding them from us. Yep. We're saving the alien answers for next week, and this week we're just going to talk about the ones that'll fill Caroline with existential dread.
1: Oh, to go along with my current existential dread.
0: That's right, and...
1: Happy 30th birthday to me.
0: And to start off with, we have the idea that life is rare or completely absent in the universe other than right here on Earth. Now, one of our top sources for this... uh, theory which is often called rare earth is the book rare earth which was published in 2000 by peter ward and donald brownlee their two university of washington professors and they basically posited that the series of events that led to the creation of our earth the evolution of life on it and the evolution of of our particular form of intelligent tool using technology creating life was so improbable that it just couldn't have happened maybe anywhere else in the universe, and certainly not many more times.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you look at evolution, when you look at how humanity came to be, it is absolutely insane that we, I mean, we started from a single-celled organism, and, and we have brains now? Like, what? Yeah. Um. You know, we believe in evolution in this house. You know, we we're, we can be spiritual, but um, the proof's in the pudding. And, and we evolved from uh, river slime, basically. And that's a crazy, crazy thing. No matter how many years it took to, to happen, that's a crazy thing to happen.
0: Yeah. And the mechanisms that caused, I mean, you know, evolution is still being studied, right? We still don't fully understand evolution by any stretch.
1: And, <laughs> and certainly not on this podcast.
0: And we certainly don't understand abiogenesis, life from nothing, which is what had to happen here, presumably, at some point.
1: Yeah, and then you get into the whole spiritual debate. But yeah, I mean, something <laughs> something had to create one cell, or it had to spontaneously pop into being. And either way, that's wild.
0: There is vague talk about primordial soup, but there is no real detailed discussion about what the ingredients are or uh, how long you had to simmer that thing.
1: What do you think a primordial soup would be? I well, think it would be a pea soup. Something thick.
0: Listen, as long as you as long as you start her off with some uh, some beef stock, a couple onions, some celery, baby Baby, you got a soup cone <laughs> a primordial soup you see in the 70s and 80s uh, drake and sagan had argued that the earth was a typical rocky planet orbiting a pretty typical star in an unassuming part of a pretty typical spiral shaped galaxy and therefore the universe must be teeming with complex life just like we have right here Where Ward and Brownlee disagree is, uh, again, they thought that that genesis of life on Earth took the combination of many overlaying and improbable factors. Uh, In the context of the Fermi Paradox discussion, these factors are called great filters. I'm going to slip in my first Isaac Arthur plug here. Mm -hmm. I first heard the term great filters from uh, Isaac Arthur, who is a YouTuber and futurist. We love him. We love him very much. He does exhaustive research on, yeah, videos that just kind of present futurist ideas with the intention that people could borrow them for sci-fi uh, stories and stuff. It,
1: it seems like that's kind of his his main thrust. But I've learned so much science from him. That's the first place I ever heard of a Dyson sphere. And it, as I said, like the uh, 70s Grateful Dead type of concert, blew my mind.
0: Yeah, and the, it, it's all just overlaid with, like, I, I don't know, uh, rights-free images
1: and... Um, and things he's made, presumably, charts and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, he... Isaac it makes a, it as accessible as it could be to someone who is not a genius. Yes. And we are not geniuses.
0: Exactly. So <laughs> it, it, it's popular late-night viewing in this house. That's what I'll say. And... Isaac Arthur points out that these uh, great filters, he we, you can think of them as as if a civil as if all c- potential civilizations are coming down a pipe, and there's a series of um, filters of kind of combs in the pipe uh, with finer and finer teeth, um, wiping out all these potential uh, life-bearing worlds before they ever quite get there.
1: And maybe even you know there is life, but it doesn't get any bigger it it doesn't evolve at all it stops at a certain point and that point is before any kind of intelligence
0: that's right so what are our largest and earliest filters well um how about the position of the star that we orbit in our galaxy something you might not even think about ward and Brownlee said that the closer to the center of the galaxy you are the more metallic elements you have in your stars and Metallic elements are necessary for life, at least the organic life we understand on Earth.
1: I remember this from astronomy, yes.
0: And so if you get too far from the galactic center, they argued, life would be impossible. Um, However, the further you get from the center, um, X-ray and gamma, gamma radiation becomes less intense. So if you were too close to the galactic center, you would constantly be bombarded by radiation, and life could never take hold at all, or... Maybe just everyone would be the Incredible Hulk, and that's problematic as well.
1: (laughs) So it's the real Goldilocks equation here.
0: Yeah, uh, that's exactly what they. these kinds of things are always called, Goldilocks
1: zones.
0: (laughs) Um, So yeah, you want to be far enough from the crowded center not to be... It's also crowded in the center, so you want to be far enough out that you're not constantly colliding with other worlds as the spiral arms of that galaxy cross.
1: Is it crowded in the center because of gravity or orbit? Or why would it be crowded in the center?
0: It may alarm you to know that at the center of the galaxy is an enormous black hole and that the entire... Of our galaxy? All galaxies. And the entire galaxy is uh, orbiting it less orbiting it and more swirling toward the center like a toilet bowl.
1: So there's one in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. Yes. (sighs) Listen, I heard that the the sun would explode and envelop the Earth like five billion years from now. And I'm anxious about that. So thanks. Well,
0: the good news is I think that will happen before we collapse into the black hole at the center of the universe. Okay. By Ward and Brownlee's estimation, the Goldilocks zone of the Milky Way is probably only five to ten percent of the galaxy. Which makes those really optimistic estimates of Earth like planets a lot less optimistic. Mm-hmm. They also point to some local factors right here in our solar system that could have been great filters for the Earth or protected us from great filters, uh, like gas giants. You see, usually gas giants form, in a a lot of stars apparently, gas giants form closer to the star. That's where the gravity is the most intense, it's where something big gets trapped and then it forms, you know, the, the, the gas giant planet around it.
1: I'll take your word for it.
0: There's actually something they call hot Jupiters, which are...
1: Oh, she's got a pair of hot Jupiters over there.
0: Well, when gas giants get too close to their stars, they basically ignite... And you've got like this huge planet with a flaming atmosphere that orbits its sun. So it's like a little second sun. That's cute. It is. They call them hot Jupiters because (laughs) it's just like Jupiter except on fire.
1: Nice. Um, Nice naming scientists.
0: (laughs) Anyway, I guess it's somewhat rare actually for a system to be built like ours where the gas giants are outside of rocky planets toward the center of the sun. So we have Saturn and Jupiter protecting us. From potential asteroid collisions and comets and things like that, because of the massive gravity that they generate.
1: They're so big.
0: At the same time, it's also really important that they're as far away from us as they are, because if they were closer, their massive gravity would screw up our orbit. And Warden Brownlee argue, and this part makes sense to me, that a consistently and constantly stable orbit is necessary for life to form
1: planetary social distancing if you will
0: yes but also that's where our climate comes from it's where um not gravity i suppose but it's where our um climate and all of our day and night cycle comes from and, and uh, everything else that that circadian rhythms depend on
1: yeah and, and the moon well yeah the moon depends on us and it's all one big chain almost like people we all affect each other so be kind
0: it's true the planet also has to be the right size if it's too small it can't hold in an atmosphere with its gravity and you can't have an ocean oh if it's too big you end up with a high pressure atmosphere Uh, for example venus is larger than the earth it's uh obviously too hot there for anything to live because it's closer to the sun and outside of our habitable zone um but also that atmospheric pressure on venus is 92 times the surface pressure of the earth
1: damn i thought one of those over oh, those spinny rides uh, the rotor the rotor <laughs> late compounds where you're stuck to the wall and then you uh, it blasts you against the wall and then the floor drops so it's like this would be bad like, all the time but... It's like that but crushed to the floor all the time <laughs> yes damn
0: so you want it to be the right size, you want it to be in the habitable zone of the star, which uh, Ward and Brownlee say is small, other scientists have said like 50% of planets orbiting stars are in their habitable zone, so I don't know, take your pick. <laughs> pick, you all,
1: pick your genius to believe.
0: You may also need plate tectonics, it's under, it's misunderstood what the mechanism is, but um, plate tectonics might have given rise to the, the amount of oxygen in our atmosphere, and they certainly gave rise to continents. And continental drift may have helped, well, definitely helped uh, diversify life on Earth, which is helpful when extinction events roll along, because that's everyone's favorite filter (laughs) is extinction events.
1: Yes, remember, in in dogs and in people, diversity is key to a strong civilization. So all your eugenic folk, get out of here.
0: I just That's mi- how you end up inbred, like the royals. Oh, I just, in this case I'm more mean if you've got birds all over the planet
1: instead of just one spot. Sure, but even I mean I think I've read this, that it's better to be like possibly biracial or, or have a mix of cultures in your background just body-wise because that means that you're descended from people who dealt with different things.
0: That wouldn't surprise me. It's definitely true that As you said, with dogs uh, and stuff, inbreed and in people, inbreeding is bad over time. So it makes sense to me that diversifying the gene pool as much as possible would be good.
1: Yeah, and then eventually, if you're inbred so much, you can't have more children, you can't continue the civilization. So mix it up, people.
0: Now, here's the argument against Ward and Brownlee in their rare earth theory. Here's the problem. And you got at this before, Carrie. Oh, look at me. We don't know that the only conditions life can evolve under are the ones that they did evolve under on this planet. And actually, right here on this planet, we have some really, really weird animals that uh, don't need all the things that we traditionally think of as uh, life requiring. Hmm. This is a Latin name, so I'm going to screw it up. Spinaloicus cinziae. They're gonna say Enrique Glacius. is a pretty recently found animal. It's a microscopic, aquatic animal in the Mediterranean. Not like a one-celled thing, though. It's like a little water bug <laughs> um, that processes hydrogen instead of water. Instead of oxygen. Interesting. Its body just works differently than the rest of us. It works um, on on hydrogen. It's an anaerobic. Um, animal. There are plenty of unicellular one-celled animals that are anaerobic as well, and in fact, a lot of them die if they're exposed to oxygen.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's more of this kind of stuff deep, deep down in the ocean that we've never discovered.
0: Let me tell you about Halicephal... Halicephalibus Mephisto.
1: I wish you would. I'm sure he's gonna be the, the bad guy in Marvel Phase 3. I
0: know, well... Mephisto might be, but not the Halicephalabus Mephisto. Bless you. This is a a species of nematode, so it's a tiny, tiny little roundworm. It's not anything really scary or impressive. In fact, it's only half a millimeter long, but it's been found living 2.2 miles underground. Hmm. Nothing else has been found living deeper than like a mile and a half in the Earth's crust.
1: Unless we go to Hollow Earth
0: these are conditions that humans certainly can't live under
1: because um, it's so hot
0: it's so hot and the pressure is so crushing at that depth so where these nematodes were actually discovered was in like flush we there's these really really deep gold mines where they'll basically frack the gold out they'll like shoot hot water down into the earth to flush it out and some of that hot water from like a couple miles down came up with nematodes in it. and they were like what <laughs>
1: can you imagine being a nematode let me out
0: (laughs) but it's basically in hell it is in like crushing pressure and heat uh maybe similar to uh venus's atmosphere you know what i mean so and still alive so when you talk about the things life can be subjected to or can thrive conditions life can thrive under maybe we do have to expand our, our definition there how about tardigrades carrie what about tardigrades
1: that's what I wake up and go to bed thinking. Have you ever seen a tardigrade? I don't know what it is, so I don't know if I have.
0: Yeah, I'm going to show you a picture of a tardigrade. Um, tardigrades are very small. They also are about half a millimeter, by the way, although ha- the largest ones can be up to a millimeter and a half. And I want you to know, Caroline, that these <laughs> are...
1: They look like little manatees, Well, but with anuses for faces. They're nicknamed water bears. Or moss piglets. We have a little moss piglet upstairs. That's right. They have a bunch of little arms. How strange. They have little buttholes for faces.
0: Yeah, they likely um, evolved from something slightly bigger that existed like when the dinosaurs did. They're one of the oldest animals on Earth, though. They can survive almost anything, Carrie. In fact, you can, much like brine shrimp or something, dehydrate tardigrades and then rehydrate them and they'll still be alive. They'll be fine. Check this out. In an experiment, tardigrades were exposed to the hard vacuum of space for 10 days and then reanimated. You know, they were uh, dehydrated first exposed to hard vacuum for 10 days and then reanimated. Mm -hmm. 68% of the tardigrades survived fine when they came back.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
0: And some of the ones that died Still produced um, viable embryos uh, first.
1: Well, you gotta get your well, your the, freak on before you go
0: out. That's the point of life. Uh-huh. To be fair. So, anyway, the point is, uh, life can can survive in some pretty amazing situations. Life finds a way. Finds a way. Now, I'll point out tardigrades and nematodes, and um, that thing that I'm not going to attempt the uh-huh. Mephisto no that was the nematode uh, the thing in the mediterranean the little fish in the mediterranean these aren't intelligent life they're not building technology they're certainly not doing space flight mhm and so we go to the second answer to the fermi paradox maybe extraterrestrial life does exist out there somewhere but it hasn't developed sufficiently to create what you'd call a civilization, or certainly an advanced civilization.
1: Maybe they're just little butthole manatees.
0: Maybe there's just weird nematodes and tardigrades out there, and there's nothing bigger and definitely nothing intelligent out there. Mm -hmm. Some evolutionary biologists point out that intelligence is just an adaptation, like any other, and it's not an inevitable product of evolution. We're not more evolved than Uh, ants were just evolved differently to react to different circumstances. And so, assuming that human intelligence, it was a natural, was always going to happen as a product of evolution is like assuming if you were an elephant that all evolution would eventually produce a long nose like you and the aardvark have. Hey. In fact, some biologists say big brains may have been particularly unlikely to evolve because they're a pretty costly adaptation. Um, in our case, our big brains have to be funded by an advanced metabolism and a long gestation period we keep we carry our young for longer than uh, most mammals and long childhoods. It's almost unheard of in the animal kingdom for childhood to take up almost a quarter of the being's life
1: mm-hmm. and for some, even more, am I right?
0: I get it, okay, I'll clean my room. <laughs> Biologist Charles Lineweaver points out that humans, apes, whales, dolphins, octopuses, and squids are among a very small group of definite or probable intelligence, even here on Earth.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, dolphins are crazy.
0: But as Lineweaver also points out, dolphins have had, this is a direct quote from him, uh, dolphins have had about 20 million years to build a radio telescope and have not done so.
1: They don't have thumbs, Sean. They
0: also don't have the intelligence or the interest to build a, a, a telescope Maybe or a Maybe they spaceship. do have
1: the intelligence, and they're not interested. That could be. Which is fair.
0: But in all seriousness, it seems fair to say that the only species cap- ever capable of space flight on this planet will probably be human beings. Mm-hmm. If we are, ever.
1: Well, we were capable of space flight. Yeah, it's barely space. The moon. <laughs> Go to the last episode to see how barely space can be very terrifying.
0: <laughs> maybe, though, Carrie, maybe intelligence in some form would always come out in some species on a diverse enough planet. Maybe life would eventually get there. But maybe it's rare that it's given the chance. It
1: seems likely.
0: Because another of these great filters is extinction events. Mm-hmm. Like I said, um, you might be we might be safer out here on the spiral arms of the galaxy as we are because we're not constantly running into the orbits of other stars where gravitational pull could rip you right out of your orbit and send you tumbling
1: through space. Yeah, but even so, we've dealt with more than a couple extinction events in the Earth's history.
0: Earth has suffered five mass extinction events. Um, and mass extinctions are defined as events in which half or more of the species on the planet go extinct within a short time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You want to run through them, Carrie?
1: Sure. I'm already terrified of everything. Let's do it.
0: 440 million years ago, nearly 85% of marine organisms, and most of the Earth was marine organisms at this point, uh, were wiped out in the Ordovidian-Silurian extinction. These all have, they're, they're mainly two names, because it's like the the era you were in, and the era you're going into. This first extinction uh, came in two phases. One as glaciers came up over 20 million years, destroying habitats and dropping temperatures all over the world. They then came back down over the next few million years, which came with intense oxygen deprivation that destroyed more habitats, and uh, just straight up oxygen starved uh, many of the fish in the world. Oh. Huh. 365 million years ago, so just just a hair under 100 million years later, many of the tropical marine species died off in the Devonian extinction. Uh, scientists say now this is actually five different marine die-offs, and the mechanism is unclear, but oxygen levels dropped in the ocean, just like the last time.
1: Bad not to have oxygen, noted.
0: It's definitely in the ocean it is. Now, 250 million...
1: I would argue outside of the ocean, too, Sean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, for us, certainly. Yeah. Not for the nematodes or whatever. No. 250 million years ago was the biggest mass extinction event in Earth's history. Perhaps 95% of species on Earth were wiped out in the Permian-Triassic extinction, which has also been called the Great Dying.
1: hmm
0: Now, the likely culprit of this one... Was the Siberian Traps. Uh, The Siberian Traps is the name for 3 million square miles of basalt and lava rock covering a chunk of Siberia, Russia. Mm -hmm. A bunch of the ground, like for 3 million, which is like most, by the way, I think it might be almost or just over half of the Russian landmass. Was just covered in this uh, lava, which since, you know,
1: Was this because of a volcanic eruption that happened, or it happened over time?
0: There was a series of violent and near-continuous eruptions for about two million years.
1: Must have eaten some Chipotle, am I right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Scientists have measured, and I don't know how they measure this. There's some reference to radiocarbon technology. I I don't know. I don't know how you could find this out. But scientists say that ocean temperatures during this extinction at the peak of the global warming that happened, may have topped 104 degrees at the equator. So the ocean was just a, a, a hot tub. A pretty hot hot tub. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it is unclear how the Siberian traps killed uh, all life on Earth, pretty much. But there's a couple of different theories. And the most kind of bought into by scientists, it seems at this point, is that carbon dioxide thrown up by the volcano, as well as burned up in the eruptions, as coal and um, as coal and oil and stuff in the in the Earth's crust burned up, um, as well as a bunch of there's all these microbes uh, that like to live in volcanoes who <sighs> also produce methane as a product of their life spam. Mm-hmm. And so what you had was these volcanoes. Causing, not directly, but indirectly, tons of methane and carbon dioxide to be fired up into the atmosphere, which scientists think caused global warming. It was just carbon. This
1: initial global warming, yeah.
0: Carbon emissions and global warming. And uh, that eventually wiped out, again, uh, perhaps 95% of species on Earth. Almost all ocean life died, and like 70% of land species.
1: And that that was natural. I mean, now we're doing bespoke global warming, which is very exciting. Yeah, we're handcrafting it this time.
0: Mm -hmm. In some places after the Permian-Triassic extinction, complex ecosystems wouldn't emerge again for 10 million years. It was only 40 million years later that land vertebrate die-offs allowed dinosaurs to rise in the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. You see, that's the other thing about these extinction events, Carrie, is when you don't wipe out all of the life on Earth, what you end up with is an explosion after, where the space that was left is filled up by now new life, because there's a, a ton of room for evolution to take place over the next several million years.
1: A baby boom, basically. How far ago was this?
0: 210 million years ago. Interesting. And this moved us from the Triassic period into the Jurassic period, the time of the dinosaurs.
1: hmm
0: Now, this one's also, uh, they also blame this one on one of these large igneous provinces. That's what they call these chunks of vo- volcano rock left over from huge explosions. This one's called CAMP, C-A-M-P, because it actually is so big that it falls under three different continents. Uh, Including the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, uh, the bottom edge of, uh, sorry, the furthest western edge of Africa, and the uh, northeast corner of South America.
1: This wasn't caused by an asteroid.
0: No, this is seven million square miles of, of again, basalt and other lava rock that are that were spewed out during volcanic eruptions uh, over the course of millions of years. Once again, scientists speculate that this caused massive global warming due to carbon emissions. Um, however, there could have just sometimes these extinctions might happen from despeciation rather than die-offs. Does that make any sense? Where uh, some species outcompete other species and some of them just just die the way that we kill species today by overhunting them or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. But there was another event after this that killed the dinosaurs.:
0: Yes, this is the event that got us to the dinosaurs. Gotcha. There were a bunch of, um, I think, closer to like re- real true lizards before the before the the dinosaurs uh, came on, mm-hmm. and they all died in the tri- in the Triassic extinction, and then here comes uh, our you know all of our old friends, mm-hmm. and they ruled the Earth for close to hundred fifty million years until. 65 million years ago the cretaceous tertiary extinction wiped out three quarters of all species on the planet at that time including our old friends triceratops and tyrannosaurus rex this ended the mesozoic this was such a big deal caroline that it ended the mesozoic era and started the cenozoic
1: era which is where we are today and this was the asteroid
0: Yes, first proposed by Luis Alvarez and his team of scientists in 1980. The most commonly accepted uh, version of this at this point is a massive comet or asteroid six to ten miles wide struck the Earth. Now, this scientists say this would cause the equivalent energy of several million nuclear weapons exploding simultaneously on the Earth's surface.
1: Do they have any idea where it hit?
0: No, I don't think they do although there's several craters that people point to as as possible um possibly where it came from.
1: So what you're telling me is that there is a mass extinction event about every uh, 100 million years and uh, are we due for one? Possibly.
0: I don't think we are honestly because it was only it was a fresh 65 million years ago.
1: I know, but it was 150 after like before that, so
0: yeah, but then it was only forty before to to the next one before that. <sighs>
1: Sean, I'm just very anxious.
0: yeah, and uh, you know maybe you should be. there's there's plenty of things that
1: could cause. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse, but most of those species weren't wiped out by the direct impact of the asteroid. They were wiped out um, by an impact winter following the asteroid. You see when something that big hits the earth, it kicks up so much rock and dirt and debris into the atmosphere. Like a volcano. Just like a volcano. Uh, Like when the volcano erupted in Iceland and no one could fly into Europe for like two weeks. Um, Except this would cover the entire world in a blanket, um, blotting out the sun, stopping all photosynthesis, causing all plants to die out. And of course, there's a chain reaction from there.
1: Yeah, that's super comforting. Thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A similar thing would happen in the event of a nuclear war. Mm Mm-hmm. But these aren't the only uh, possible extinctions we could experience. Uh, extinction level events um, could be meteor impacts, large volcanic eruptions like we've seen before. But there's also astronomical events like gamma ray bursts. You know what gamma ray bursts are?
1: Uh, the Incredible Hulk farting?
0: These are, it's almost as fun as that. Um, ga- gamma ray bursts are uh, pulses of energy that sometimes fire out of dying stars. So out of the middle of a supernova, sometimes there will be basically a directional explosion. So whichever way the supernova is facing, it'll (laughs) fire out in both directions. And some think that if one of these happened in the Milky Way, pointed directly at Earth, it would probably be an extinction-level event.
1: Yeah, that is super fun.
0: Just everyone getting turned into, I assume, again, Incredible Hulks uh, at once. (laughs) Uh, Here's the good news. Uh, Gamma Pulse's seem to only happen at a rate of maybe a few per galaxy per million years. So you and I are unlikely to have to deal with that one.
1: Okay, if you say so.
0: Which raises the question, Carrie. Yes, there is constant danger to the fragile life on this planet and every other planet. But we got this far. Can this be all that rare?
1: You tell me, Sean.
0: Well, I don't know. We still haven't seen any (laughs) other aliens out there.
1: Didn't we just possibly discover a life form on another planet on Mars or water or something?
0: There is water uh, on Mars, but it's mostly ice.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Apparently, there's a little bit of vapor in the atmosphere as well. Mm. Life on Mars is a David Bowie song. That might be what you're thinking of.
1: I'm always thinking of David Bowie.
0: This brings us to, I think, the most chilling thought in this episode.
1: Fabulous.
0: Because maybe it's not that rare to get to this point. You got a couple gas giants, you're in the right part of your solar system, you get a primordial... Baby, you got a soup going. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I know what you're going to say.
0: Maybe what often happens is that life will eventually get to roughly the point we're at, but doesn't often get to the spacefaring part. And, uh, uh, you listeners, you're probably ahead of me at this point, but a possible explanation for that is that civilizations might be destroying themselves shortly after or just before they get to the point of spaceflight.
1: Well, we've gotten to the spaceflight part.
0: That's true. And, uh, we've also... So far, avoided destroying ourselves with nuclear weapons, which so far are the most devastating weapons technology we've come up with.
1: Yeah, but so far is what? Sixty years?
0: So far is since the invention, uh yeah, I mean almost
1: seventy. Not that long in the scheme of things. No,
0: and they only get bigger.
1: They all say that.
0: <laughs> they're, they're growers, not showers. <laughs> So, what are some ways that we could end our own stay on this uh, on this planet? Uh, accidental environmental damage certainly would be uh, one. Purposeful
1: thing. at this point.
0: We're willfully. We're currently slowly doing that, but there could also be any number of different um, accidents, nuclear meltdowns, that kind of thing that could cause irreparable environmental damage and really send us into a tailspin.
1: Already has in some places. We're just lucky that it wasn't bigger.
0: That's true. Uh, there's also just plain old resource depletion as uh, population rises on the planet. Maybe we'll come up with solutions to that, though. There's always a profit in coming up with solutions to that. But you worry about AIs, bioweapons, um, antimatter weapons. There's weapons that we haven't invented yet, is my point, that uh, could, could be more dangerous than what we have now. But let's talk about what we have now, Carrie. Okay. Let's talk about... Just the nukes we already have. The the closest the Earth ever came to nuclear war, full all-out nuclear war, was the Cuban Missile Crisis, which uh, you and hopefully our listeners are familiar with. Mm -hmm. October 1962, the United States had just secretly placed Jupiter missiles in Italy and Turkey, which would let them... A couple of hot Jupiters? A couple of hot Jupes, (laughs) uh, which were in striking distance of the Russian uh, mainland. And they weren't thrilled about this. They were not. Uh, The U.S. had also just pissed off uh, Fidel Castro with the Bay of Pigs debacle. Uh, And he wasn't thrilled. And he wasn't thrilled. And so Khrushchev and Castro started getting buddy-buddy, and Khrushchev started building missile launch facilities in Cuba. When Kennedy and his advisors got pictures of the launch facilities, that's a situation that's tough to back down from.
1: But again, it's—I never understand why, unless you're in a war and you, it's not mutually assured destruction, which is literally only World War II because no one else had it. So now it would also—it would always be mutually assured destruction if they have the chance to shoot them back at us. Why would you ever do that? What's the point of that? You're just ending the world. For yeah. what? The scary
0: thing is. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, almost all of Kennedy's advisors, who came to be known as XCOM, his security Council, and a few other guys, uh, these meetings are on tape, and you can listen to them on the internet. We'll include a link,
1: right? Sure, yeah.
0: You can hear Bobby Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara. Uh, most of these men, I think everyone except Bobby, didn't know Jack was recording these meetings, and so they're, very, they're speaking very unguardedly about how the president should airstrike the hell out of Cuba and then start a ground invasion right away.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you can have your your criticisms of any president. You can have them of Kennedy and what kind of man he was and how he was doing a lot of things on the side. But at the end of the day, this one man stood between us and oblivion.
0: Kennedy likely prevented a certain nuclear war By starting a blockade of the island instead of doing the uh, air assault and ground assault. And then um, backing off a little bit and even calling that a quarantine and not a blockade of the island because Khrushchev was upset. (laughs) And finally, he struck a secret deal with Khrushchev where publicly the Soviets pulled the missiles out of the U.S. But only if the U.S. promised not to come back. Don't come back to Cuba. Um, Privately, Kennedy also agreed to dismantle the missiles he had set up in Turkey. Uh, possibly the ones in Italy as well. That's actually not clear in the historical record. But um, so I love that Khrushchev like let Kennedy. The only way Kennedy could do this was if he could save face with the American people and not tell them that he had taken away our own missiles because mm-hmm. uh, it was also an election year. Um, so I just love that the, these two men found a way to work together to avoid the worst possible situation, and it makes you. It does make you feel good about humanity in a way.
1: But then there is also that fear of the one guy having his finger on the button. And they're not all going to be Kennedy.
0: No, if it was almost any of the other guys Literally, in that room.
1: Literally Johnson, who became president after Kennedy was assassinated, wanted to do this, right? Yes. So, shit, <laughs> is all I have to say.
0: Yeah, and there have been a few uh, less sterling uh, uh, examples than either of those guys since, actually. Oh, really? Who? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) That was likely the closest we as a planet, as a species, have ever come to all-out nuclear war. But the DOD lists hundreds of different broken arrow incidents, uh, accidents involving nuclear weapons. Some of these are accidental detonations. Some are radioactive contaminations. um, But a lot of these incidents are times when nuclear weapons or parts of nuclear weapons or the whole vehicle that was carrying a nuclear weapon is just lost and sometimes never recovered
1: or if missiles come up on radar and we're encouraged to shoot back but it turns out they were a flock of birds or something that happened right
0: yeah, that has happened. Uh, I I don't have the... Inc- it was a
1: Russian guy, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I don't have the incident in front of me, but there was definitely a That's Russian my nuclear one. sub that was, like, given the order by accident to fire the missiles. And two of the guys pressed the button, and the third guy who had to press it, like, refused or something. I'm probably God getting the details wrong and making guy. that more dramatic than it is, Bill.
1: I, I think it was something where they saw something on the radar. It looked like a missile. It was a mistake. It, it wasn't a missile. It wasn't any weapon or anything. And, um... Yeah, I know it was up to one guy to not launch, and it's just crazy to think about. And that stuff could happen all the time, and we don't know it.
0: It does, I bet. Yeah. Um, But I bet it's happening less. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, there are 3,750 active nuclear weapons, uh, 13,890 total nuclear weapons in the world that sounds like a lot of nuclear weapons uh but that's down from 3750 active weapons is down from 70,300 active nuclear weapons in 1986 okay the us and russia
1: <laughs> that feels a little better i guess
0: the us and russia each have a little over 6000 apiece total um, Russia a few hundred more, and they each have a little under 2,000 deployed around the world. The U.S. a few hundred more. So they're <laughs> got to be a little dick measuring, you mm. know, on both sides there. A little. Other countries with deployed nukes include UK, the U.K., France, China, and India. Pakistan and North Korea both have uh, nuclear technology, but we don't think that they have any deployed around the world. And Israel is strongly suspected to have 75 or 100 nuclear weapons lying around as well. Lying around as you do. The point is, we can create our own apocalypses just fine. On the other hand, like I said, we're still here. And the nuclear danger is, seems to be, less now than it has been in the past.
1: Well, the past 60 years at least. (laughs) And...
0: Well, we can fear that a lot of damage has already been done. Climate change is starting to be taken somewhat seriously, um, even as now industries are springing up, ready to capitalize and profit off it. Um, And that's, frankly, what you need to get change done in our country and our world. So I I have a lot of hope that we're not going to uh, destroy ourselves, just as long as the volcano slash meteor strike slash gamma ray burst thing doesn't happen.
1: Well, Sean, you always have been the optimist in this relationship, (laughs) so I'll just hope you're right.
0: So next week, we'll talk all about the remaining explanations to the Fermi Paradox, and these all involve advanced aliens being out there. We've exhausted the there's no aliens stuff this week. Um, Next week, we'll talk about what if aliens are there, but they're never coming here.
1: Advanced aliens.
0: What Yes. What if aliens are out there? If I say aliens, I mean guys with brains. Uh, what if Or
1: gals or theys. What if
0: they're out there, but we can't see them? Uh, or what if, in fact, they're already here? Oh, that was another thing I forgot, by the way, Carrie. It was pointed out to me. I'd never thought about this before. Sexual reproduction.
1: You've never thought about that before? Never thought about it. <laughs>
0: I've never thought about it as a necessary factor for evolution. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a strange adaptation, too. Mitosis is the way single-celled organisms uh, reproduce. hmm Just split and split and split and split and split. Every kid's the same. And sexual reproduction is is a worse... In terms of adaptation, in terms of, like, the Sexual selection.
1: Well, yeah, it's less automatic. There's choice question mark involved in it. Yeah, so uh,
0: so you've got you could have up to a fifty percent fail rate as opposed to the hundred percent success rate when you get when cells are just splitting. Right. So why did that change ever take hold? Because we know that one-celled organisms came first. Uh, Why did that change take hold? And if it didn't, could anything else have evolved? Obviously, that the sexual part is necessary for.
1: I would argue the change Diversity. took hold because it was so much fun for for those creatures. For those
0: single celled organisms?
1: No, for for them changing over to a sexual reproduction it was much preferable. They're oh, like, sure, this is awesome. Let's yeah. keep doing this. Yeah, let's you know, forget the other stuff. I'm never splitting again. <laughs> exactly. That's probably what happened. I mean, in a way.
0: No, I'm just splitting these genes open. You know what I mean? Ugh. He wore jeans. I see.
1: This episode of
0: Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie is brought to you by Hunt a Killer. Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? The body? The soul? Or perhaps to solve a horrific case? When you join Hunt a Killer, you receive a box of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer so you can escape and i hope you escape with the answers that you need input our code scary squad 20 for 20% off that's scary 20 s c a r y s q u a d 20 for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at huntakiller.com and find out a few of the guts to hunt a killer that's again scary squad 20 for 20% off hunt a killer join the hunt today
1: It's true crime time. Previously, we've covered a few different mummies. That of King Tut, Elena Hoyos, and the possible mummy, La Pascualita. La
0: Pasqualita.
1: Over on Patreon. Now, spoiler alert, we have a new mummy story coming to us in this week's news. BBC reports that late Wednesday night, Corporal Stephen Hansen was called to a house in a remote area near Moffat, Colorado, to investigate a report of a death... Upon arriving with a search warrant, Hansen was horrified at what he found. Oh? In one of the bedrooms, he stumbled upon a sort of shrine. A shrine to the mummified remains of what appeared to be a woman.
0: Oh, shit. This is, this is a um, Count von Kosell situation.
1: Mm, it's possibly even weirder. The woman's body was placed on the bed, wrapped in a sleeping bag adorned with Christmas lights, while glitter makeup had been applied around her eyes, which were missing.
0: Well, I mean, those are the first things the bugs are going to eat.
1: The body is believed to be that of Amy Carlson, 45-year-old spiritual leader of the religious group Love Has Won. Little is known about the origins of Love Has Won, which is believed to have emerged in some form in the late 2000s. Carlson was originally the follower of a different movement, then elevated to the head of Love Has Won as Mother God.
0: Mother God. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's quite a title.
1: (laughs) It's a a lot.
0: Was she named Mother God before or after her eyeballs
1: rotted out? Before. And I think it was a self-naming sort of situation. Ah! Aside from revering Carlson as a religious figure, Disciples of Love Has Won do not appear to have a fixed set of beliefs, Uh but rather combine New Age philosophy, conspiracy theories, and Messiah worship into their own theology.
0: Messiah worship with her being the Messiah, or do they mean like Jesus?
1: Amy Carlson certainly was their Messiah. Ah. And to answer your other question, she claimed to have been both Jesus Christ and Marilyn Monroe in two of her 534 past lives.
0: So it was just a broad yes, then, to, to my question.
1: Yes. Uh, she also claimed that she could cure cancer with the power of love, and that she was the real daughter of former President Donald Trump, presumably in her most recent life, and not when she was doing her other things. Right. I mean, he's he's grandpa age. It could have been her last <laughs> life. Maybe. Maybe. Love Has Won had previously been branded a cult by law enforcement, the media, and former members, with some previous Love Has Won members making accusations of physical and mental abuse in a recent Vice documentary on the cult.
0: Well, who couldn't say the same thing about juggalos, though?
1: (laughs) For her part, Carlson claimed in the same documentary that she had been trying to save humanity for 19 billion years and said she believed that everything society teaches is a lie.
0: Oh, well, she got the earth beat by quite a bit.
1: <laughs> to fully confirm the identity of the body, the coroner will need to find Carlson's dental records because the body was so badly decomposed, fingerprints could not be recovered. Oh, my God.
0: So she died and then they just kept her around, right?
1: Seems like it. The woman found in the shrine may have been dead since as long ago as March. Said Hansen to local media, quote, I've never seen a group of people so nonchalant about a dead person. <gasps> They're just like, oh,
0: Mother God? Yeah, she's in the bedroom.
1: Yeah. The body was reported by Love Has One member, Miguel Lamboy, who told police that five members of the cult had shown up at his home the day before, saying they needed a place to stay. Lamboy returned home late the next day to find Carlson's mummified remains on a bed in the back room of his home. Oh, no. No. He stated that he tried to take his two year old son and leave the house, but members would not let him leave. And that's when he went to law enforcement to report the death. And he also reported that the corpse had been transported to the home from California.
0: So it was less, oh, that's got to be a crime, right? Transporting oh, a corpse sure. over state
1: lines? 100%. There was also a 13 year old child in the house at the time. So two kids. Yeah. In the house with a cult and a corpse. And a mummy. Seven suspected you keep, members. You keep saying mummy. I don't, I don't think these guys this, were... Everyone was describing her as a mummy.
0: I don't think these guys were well-practiced in mummification. I don't think they had the, like, nose She hook. might have
1: been dried out or something. She might not have been, like, actively rotting. I don't know. But maybe, every news story called it a mummy.
0: Maybe if you smear on enough rainbow makeup, it, it kind of acts as a lacquer.
1: <laughs> Seven suspected members of Love Has Won, including so-called father god Jason Castillo were arrested at the house and charged with abuse of a corpse and child abuse
0: I don't think abuse of a corpse should be a crime
1: I don't even know what to say to that <laughs> well I don't <laughs> that includes like necrophilia and stuff
0: i don't yeah but I don't think you can abuse a corpse because it's not a person anymore
1: that was once a person though
0: it was once a person
1: and they would have had consent or not consent in the same situation, whether it's transporting or mummifying or um, making love to.
0: But they're dead. I think you're destroying the property of their family. (laughs) That's what I think.
1: Okay. Still not great. Yeah. I Uh, Still shouldn't encourage people to do these things. It should be a crime. Yes. Because we shouldn't have people digging up grandma.
0: Sorry, let me be clear. Yes. To all of that, that should be a crime. I just don't think it should be called corpse abuse.
1: I don't know what else you could call it. Property damage? Yeah. Can you own a corpse? I'd like Unless to. Unless you're Michael Jackson with the bones of the elephant Yeah, man. he owned a corpse. you like to? Okay, we're, we're getting off track. This is, we need to talk about this later. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is very upsetting. <laughs> this is like a Nick proclamation you, right now. You wouldn't like to have John Merrick's remains? I would like them to be buried in a nice place where he can rest. So would I. I'm glad we agree on that. I think Elephant Man Remains um, is something that every couple should agree on, whether or not they would want to own them.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. I Well, you know I took it off my, my list for the house.
1: Yeah, it, it weirdly disappeared from your Amazon birthday list. But anyway, uh, it is not yet clear how Carlson died, though it may have been naturally as she was allegedly ill with cancer for quite some time. Quote, we know she's not completely innocent in this whole situation because she chose to join this cult, Carlson's younger sister, Chelsea Renninger, told the BBC. But at the same time, she doesn't deserve what happened to her in the end. No human being deserves that. We will absolutely keep you updated about this disturbing story and maybe even cover it in a future episode once we get some more gory details.
0: This is only speculation. Don't come for me on this and don't hold me to it. She probably was cool with them keeping her around, right?
1: I would not be surprised. Yeah. And many religious figures and even political figures are mummified. I mean, look at Lenin.
0: Lenin is in the Red Square. You can go see him under glass.
1: Yeah, so... Maybe she just felt like it was her uh, due diligence to get mummified, but I don't think she wanted to be left in some back room in Colorado with Spangly eyeshadow.
0: Yeah, also, let's be clear. that guy wasn't reporting a death. That guy was reporting like a corpse is being forced
1: on me. And my baby and my babies. Not great. Weird story. I have a feeling it's gonna get weirder.
0: It's like the von Kosell bunch.
1: God. What a that's fun. The,
0: that's the worst sitcom I've ever what heard a of. a fun sitcom.
1: <laughs> that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at Ain'tItScary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful.
0: Yep. Special thanks to our beloved patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, and we've got two more guys Comfy Mike and James Harrington. Thank you. Welcome to the family. Um, and welcome to the scary squad, as as we uh as we call our folks over there on the Patreon. Get on that Discord. Talk with us.
1: <laughs> See you next Thursday.
0: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can check Kyle out over at his YouTube channel, Music is a verb.
1: This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved
0: murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a grot and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the Fool series now, wherever you get your podcasts.